Hey everyone, this is Sellers. And this is Stormy. And And this this is is Unforgotten. Unforgotten. Where each episode will highlight unsolved missing, murdered, and suspicious death cases in Alabama in order to raise awareness and hopefully obtain some answers for victims and their families. Please remember that any individual referenced in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law. And any opinions or views expressed in the podcast are solely those of participants. Listener discretion is advised as some of the content discussed in the podcast may contain violence or graphic descriptions and may not be suitable for all audiences. Be sure to subscribe to our Patreon channel for early access to unforgotten episodes and bonus content. Your subscription will help support the efforts of ACCA in assisting families in raising awareness for Alabama cold cases. Hey everybody, welcome back. We're glad to have you all here. Um, We thought we'd start off the show today and let you guys know um, kind of a little bit our process of picking out the cases that we are. We kind of talked about it quite a bit, trying to figure out how exactly we were going to do this and not seem like we were favoring anybody or any case or that we thought one was more important than the other in any way. We actually just decided we were going to go through the counties alphabetically to cover the cases um, across the state. And we realized that some counties have more cases in them than other counties do, so when we get through the list, we'll just start back from the beginning and cover the cases that we didn't. And eventually, we're planning on syncing up the podcast with the posts that are on the Facebook page, too. So everything will be smooth running from there. It'll be new posts and new podcast episodes that are running simultaneously. Yeah. Hopefully. Yep. So last week, we were in Baldwin County down in South Alabama. And this week, we're going to take a little road trip. Our first stop is in Barber County to discuss the 2012 disappearance of Lisa Wallace. We aren't always extremely familiar with the locations um, and general areas that we discuss. So we thought, well, if we didn't really know them that well, then there's certainly others out there as well. So yeah, I've never even heard of some of these places yeah, before. Uh, same. And Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, I, I am not, you can tell I'm not from Alabama, so you know I'm not familiar. <laughs> if y'all haven't figured that out yet, I am not from Alabama. <laughs> but I did, I do like your use of y'all. Y'all. Noticed yeah. that coming in lately. I know. I think I've hung around you a little too much. <laughs> well, we can unabama it later. Oh, that's good. So, before we dive into Lisa's case... Here's a few quick facts about Barber County from the U.S. Census Bureau. Uh, Barber County is 885 square miles with an estimated population of 25,223. Nestled in on the Alabama-Georgia line, Barber County is bordered by Russell, Bullock, and Pike, and also Henry and Dale counties. And Eufaula, the city that we're going to be talking about today, is the largest city in the county and is home to the 45,000-acre Lake Eufaula, or a.k.a. the Bass Capital of the World, or at least according to the Alabama State Parks website it is. (laughs) 
I've seen it a few times on TV, on the Outdoor Channel. Yeah. They might be on to something. Maybe. Another interesting place is Blue Springs State Park in Clio. They have crystal clear swimming pools fed by underground springs there, which I thought was really cool. I had had no idea this place was in Alabama. And the first thing I thought about was this vacation my mom and I went on with my son a few years ago. He was dead set on going to the mountains. And he all he wanted to do, I, I have no idea where this came from, but all he wanted to do was go swimming in a natural water source. And I have no idea where this came from. I don't know what he thought the rivers and the Gulf were outside of being a natural water source. (laughs) But in his mind, it was something completely different. And we traveled to Tennessee and we went on a pretty long hike to go find this natural water source that he was happy with. It's called Blue Chick Hole. Beautiful place. Um, We could have just went to Cleo, Alabama and found almost the exact same thing. Who knew? So, according to the crime.alabama.gov website, crimes in Barber County shows a 147.6 increase from 2012 to 2013, which is the time frame we're going to be discussing today. In 2012, 35 assaults, 84 burglaries, zero homicides, 573 larcenies, 14 auto thefts, 10 rapes, and five robberies were reported to have occurred wow. in Barber County. That That's kind of an odd smattering of statistics for well, a relatively small area. I know. And it looks like the increase was caused by, I guess, 2013 crimes yeah. because there were 86 assaults, 208 burglaries, one homicide, 408 larcenies, 35 auto thefts, 6 rapes, and 14 robberies reported by the end of 2013. It's important to remember that these are just estimates as the data is based on information voluntarily submitted by law enforcement agencies. Which is something we've talked a lot about. In our county that we're discussing, Clayton and Eufaula are the only two municipal agencies that have consistently reported annual numbers from well, 2005 forward. Baker Hill didn't start reporting annual numbers until 2017. Clio didn't begin until 2015. And of all things, Louisville actually stopped reporting annual numbers in 2012. That's weird. Yeah. And then... Isn't Louisville the one that we talked about only had like I don't know, less than 400 people. Yeah, or I was thinking, yeah, 300 and something, I think. So, not a lot of people. Maybe there's a reason for them not reporting. Maybe. This drives me crazy. Yeah, I know. <sighs> we talk about this a lot. Can you tell? We, we pause and we, hmm, and we get a little upset about it, but not reporting causes a lot of issues. Yeah, I mean, maybe it seems like, eh, take it or leave it. No big deal. But accurate reporting allows for budgeting. It allows for resource allocation, identification of trends in certain geographic areas, and it serves to support anti-crime measures, just to name a few. 
And let's not even get into the impact that lack of reporting or inaccurate reporting has on clearance rate. That's just another topic for another day. And I'm sorry for the detour, guys. It's just been on my nerves this week. (laughs) (laughs) And we do understand that law enforcement agencies are understaffed, but it's kind of a vicious circle, I guess. If you don't have the staff to report, but you need the report reporting to generate staff. But um, I think reporting has a little bit more substantial merit than the fact that you don't have enough staff. I think there's a big aversion to public information in Alabama. And I'm not saying that that's every, you know, every agency or entity in Alabama. But, I mean, when you try to get records, then you're denied. And then you go to try to look at crime statistics and their gaps and, you know, inconsistent reporting or no reporting at all. It's just, it's frustrating. Now, with all those facts in mind... We should now resume our normal scheduled programming. So we're starting out with Lisa Wallace. 35-year-old Lisa Wallace was last seen near Chihuahua Creek Drive in Eufaula on October 27th in 2012. Lisa is described as being between 5'3 and 5'5 and about 140 to 50 pounds with auburn hair and hazel eyes. At the time of her disappearance, she had a dolphin tattoo on her left arm. And I guess it's possible she had gotten more tattoos, you know, after she left. True, yeah. Or maybe she had tattoos nobody knew about. Originally from upstate New York, Lisa moved to the Alabama Gulf Coast shortly after she graduated high school. Around 2007, Lisa began working at the Longhorn Restaurant in Gulf Shores, where she met Libby Price and the two became instant friends. Libby says the two of them quickly formed a very close relationship due to similar circumstances that they were going through, and she described their bond as one that was more like sisters than just simply being friends. Before long, co-workers noticed a guest who had become somewhat of a regular customer, frequently returning to sit at the bar whenever Lisa was working her shift as a bartender. In a 2019 interview with the Unfound podcast, Libby recalled the first time she noticed the guy and how he left her feeling unsettled. She even had made a point to mention it to Lisa, telling her, hey, watch out for that creepy guy over at the bar. (laughs) Can't imagine she expected that Lisa would turn around and see that she was talking about Chris Wallace and just laugh and say, oh, that's my husband. That would be awkward and and maybe funny. It is a little bit. Yeah. I don't... But apparently he like really kind of, you know, gave Libby a really unsettling feeling. Yeah. So And they weren't married at this time, right? No, they weren't married yet. Um, they had been together for several years at that point and had, I guess, just started calling each other husband and wife kind of as a term of endearment. Yeah. Libby said that she thought that they maybe got together not long after Lisa moved down here. And they did get married later, but we're not really sure exactly when that was. Maybe around the 2009-2010 time period, but that's something that we haven't been able to verify yet. 
Chris regularly showing up when Lisa was on shift kind of put everybody on edge. And for good reason, too, because they'd also noticed that Lisa was continuing to show up at work with significant bruising and injuries. And after questioning her about it, Lisa admitted that those bruises came from Chris. Lisa's family and friends essentially begged her to leave Chris and report him for domestic violence. But they weren't successful in getting her to actually leave. Um, Libby said that one of their managers and her brother, who was a preacher, I think in Georgia, and his wife offered to help Lisa leave and get the assistance she needed to get herself situated and stable on her own. But it's one of those things where until somebody's ready to actually leave, you just have to let them know that you're there to support them and help them whenever they're ready. Right. It's it's unfortunate. It's very common, though, like you said. So in the mid to late 2000s, Lisa began having problems with her vision. Uh, along with loss of sensation in her upper and lower extremities, actually. And those issues continued to get worse. Lisa then decided it was time to see a doctor. So once she went to the doctor, she got some unsettling news that she had a tumor discovered on her brain in an area just behind the ear. And Mm. she began treatment with the doctors at UAB. That's a great hospital. Doctors tried conservative treatment first using medications in effort to shrink the tumor and hopefully to avoid surgery. But unfortunately, that was unsuccessful. Doctors were able to surgically remove the majority of the tumor. However, the tumor began growing again, and Lisa had to schedule a second surgery again to hopefully remove the entirety of the tumor in December of 2012. So according to Libby, the location of the tumor seemed to have caused Lisa to have a lot of intense pain, um, headaches, and sometimes losing feeling even in her right arm. But she says that the tumor didn't seem to affect Lisa's decision-making abilities or any mental capacities in any way. And I remember seeing comments, you know, when we were digging through looking at things about whether her having a tumor could have influenced her maybe leaving on her own Mm. or anything like that. And that was one of the reasons why, you know, we kind of asked about that was, you know, was it that kind of tumor that would have kind of changed her behavior? Right. Um, after beginning her treatment, Chris insisted that they move to Ufala to be closer to his family and her doctors. And it was kind of a recurring thing, I guess. You know, her friends and her coworkers had already started noticing this regular physical abuse on top of Chris was constantly showing up at her work during her shifts and basically controlling what was going on in their life. So then when she was going through this treatment, it sounds like it turned less into a suggestion of let's move to you follow where my family lives and more of this is what we're going to do. Yeah. It's um, very common. 
also, you know, in addition to the things we already talked about, that um, that they will sometimes be isolated from friends and family. And Lisa did agree with Chris to the extent that moving to Ufala would be closer to UAB, but she didn't have friends and family in Ufala. And moving that far away from her support system, given all that she was facing, made her hesitant and a little bit nervous. You know, I think it would be normal for anybody in that situation to be scared. You're dealing with unexpected and serious health concerns. You don't know what's going to happen. On top of being in an abusive relationship with somebody who is not just physically abusing you, but emotionally abusing you um, and losing your support system, that's got to be tough. Yeah. And she indeed was scared, so scared that she actually left a note with Libby expressing her feelings about what was going on with her. And she actually told her that if there was anything that happened to her, that she should call the police and look at Chris first. So she had some serious concerns about him at this point. Sometimes it's hard to learn that the victims in these cases we research um, more than likely knew what was going to happen. They just couldn't find a way out or they couldn't admit to themselves, you know, what was going on. It is sad. It's almost like foreshadowing when you know the ending and mm. you just, you're reading it as you're going and you're thinking, get out while you still can. Yeah. Regardless of our initial skepticism, Libby said Lisa was happy after the move for the most part. She had gotten a job at River City Barbecue in Eufaula, and she really liked her coworkers and her bosses. And although she had not expected to be able to have a child after undergoing the various medical treatments for the brain tumor, Lisa and Chris welcomed a baby girl in early 2011. Mm-hmm. After giving birth to their daughter, Darren, Lisa's outlook on life changed. After you have kids, you have to look at things in a different way. You have to make decisions in a different way because you're no longer thinking about just yourself. You now have another person to consider when you're making these decisions. So Lisa began reevaluating her marriage with Chris. And she realized their relationship really hadn't improved. And according to Libby, Chris was continuing to be controlling and abusive. And Lisa decided now... She has this beautiful baby girl that she didn't expect to have, and she needed to set a better example for their daughter. Right. Around October 24th in 2012, she called Libby, and the two talked for hours about the plans that Lisa had made to ensure that their almost two-year-old daughter had a more stable and positive environment to grow up in. Lisa said that she and Chris had talked and made the decision to go ahead and get a divorce. Libby, though, was a little surprised to hear that Chris had actually agreed to the divorce. And, you know, leading up to this, I'm a little surprised, too. Mm -hmm. But uh, Lisa felt like Chris was a good father and she didn't want to limit his ability to spend time with their daughter by moving away. So she contacted a KOA, which is a local campground, and about renting a cabin there which would allow Crystal to maintain regular visits with her daughter um, nearby. But 
still let them live apart and proceed with the divorce. Libby recalls Lisa being really excited about the future and starting over and remained positive about co-parenting with Chris. This conversation that they had was last of the conversations the two friends would ever have. And I know Lisa was positive about that, but considering the things that we've heard Libby say up to this point, I can't imagine that that would have been a very easy co-parenting relationship. I don't either at all. <laughs> and I know there's always three sides to every story, you know, yours, theirs, and the truth. Mm-hmm. But apparently, you know, more than just Libby, we're witnessing these things happening to Lisa. Lisa's not here to tell her side either right. at this point, but... There are some things out there that still do give some insight into Lisa's thoughts on these things. Um, you know, like the letter that she left with Libby and right. different posts that she made on Facebook. And, you know, it is it is sad to think that she thought, you know, had this hope and excitement built up and she's not even here now to be able to see that through, I guess. It kind of makes you wonder if she wasn't trying to convince herself because she made this huge decision and tried to fix things and maybe it wasn't quite going the way she thought, but she wanted to make it a positive thing and make everybody think it was going to be better. Sometimes people put on a front. Like maybe it, you know, wasn't, maybe he didn't agree as Mm -hmm. easily as the way she made it sound. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. On October 26th, just a few days after her conversation with Libby, Lisa made what would end up being her last post on Facebook. She said, I'm amazed at myself this morning, the decisions I've made, the peace I've come to, by simply reminding myself of one thing. Darren is all that matters. This post came on the heels of another post just a few days prior that said something along the lines of, I'm tired of having my feelings hurt. You've brought this on yourself. Well, backing up just a little bit, in early to mid-2012, one of Lisa's friends and co-workers, Amy Wilson, and her young daughter came to live with Lisa and Chris. She was living with them at the time of Lisa's disappearance. But apparently, Amy and Lisa began to have their differences, which actually led to Lisa questioning whether she should trust her completely. And we're not really sure exactly what was causing that mistrust. But, you know, once you get the little seed of distrust in you, it is hard to overcome that. And broken trust is hard to repair. It is, which is unfortunate because it sounded like they were pretty good friends before this. I, mean, yeah. I think you'd have to be to let, you know, come live in somebody's house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Libby said in their last conversation with Lisa, she had more to tell her, but that she would have to call back because Amy was there and had been listening in on their conversations. And it sounds like from what we've heard that that was at least a suspicion that Amy was doing this pretty often. That's some friend. Yeah. So according to Chris, he and Lisa had an argument the night of October 26th. 
And this kind of goes to your point about maybe things weren't as great and easy as what she was making it seem like to her friends. Yeah. He said that argument continued after they woke up the following morning on the 27th. And from what I can gather, it seems like maybe Lisa began packing a bag during the argument that morning, at which point Chris decided to take their daughter to his mother's. And he reported going to his mother's around 1 p.m. And it's really not that clear to me exactly what happened, honestly, because I've read things that said they got into the argument and then Chris left to go take their daughter to his mother's at 1. And while he was gone, Lisa packed a bag and left on foot. What do you think? How would he know that? And then I've read things that said she began packing a bag, so he took their daughter to his mother's, which would make sense if they're in a heated argument. And she's like, fine, I'm just leaving. And he's like, let me get our daughter out of this situation. We'll deal with it when I get back. But 1 p.m. is not the morning. So the timing's off there. That's what I was thinking. And I think there's some other things that happened um, just based on some comment threads that we've read through, but we haven't really had time to verify those. So it is something that we need to look into and maybe come back and update later. Because it's possible that Lisa's boss actually from River City came by to see if she needed a ride to work that morning. Lisa didn't have a car, so they frequently rode to work together and from the comments and the threads that we've read, it appears that whoever her boss was stopped by that morning as usual to see if she was going to need a ride to work, and nobody answered the door. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, that's I think, interesting. That'd be good to verify that. But it is something to consider because the timeline, does, as it stands, doesn't make sense, just from Chris's recollection. And... Not only does it not make sense, but Chris also stated that Lisa had packed four dresses and some dress shoes, which is an oddly specific detail for him to have known considering he either left as she was packing or maybe even before she began packing. Yeah, that is a little odd. I've watched the Crime Con sessions where they talk about liars and how to spot those and a liar always puts in very specific details to make it seem like they're telling the truth. And I just thought that was crazy for him to know the exact number of dresses that she put put in her bag. Yeah. And it wasn't like she worked at the office. She worked at a restaurant. If that were me, I'd be packing some blue jeans and some legging, leggings. Same. Not, not yeah. gonna lie. I'm leggings and a t-shirt, sweatshirt. Mm-hmm. So her friends also say the description of the clothing seemed out of character for Lisa's typical style, as you were saying. She preferred more casual, comfortable clothing. To make See? it even more biz- you know, to make it even more bizarre, she didn't even take her medicines, her contacts, her contact solution, or toothbrush, any of the stuff that you would normally take with you if you were leaving, especially if you were leaving for any length of time. Well, that's even weirder because we know that the tumor was also giving her vision problems. Mm -hmm. And she wore contacts. 
and she didn't take those with her. So she just, just couldn't see when she left. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how bad her eyesight was, but I, mean, I guess, but like you said, with the combination of the tumor and whatever she already had going on with her normal eyesight. And I get my terrible migraines. I can't imagine how bad her headaches must have been. Yeah. I can't imagine her leaving without medication willingly. I wouldn't think so. At any rate, by the time Chris returned from his mother's, Lisa was gone and he believed she'd left on foot because, you know, as we said, she didn't have a car and he was in their only vehicle. Obviously, he wasn't too concerned when she didn't return because he didn't contact anybody to see if they'd heard from her and he didn't report her missing either. Well, it was actually Amy that sort of tipped people off that something wasn't quite right, actually. When she began messaging friends of Lisa around October 30th, so three days, <laughs> um, Libby was one of the friends that received a message from Amy asking her to call and said it was an emergency. Libby wasn't particularly fond of Amy, so she didn't respond. And instead, she messaged Lisa, which, of course, went unanswered. Then the following day, Amy sent Libby another message saying Lisa had left Darren with Chris and nobody could find her. So, as I mentioned earlier, my first thought when I was reading through the articles that we found was, how did Chris know that Lisa left on foot if he wasn't there? I guess you know, one option, considering he had their only vehicle, would be that she left on foot. But she had a cell phone, so my first thought would have been she called for a ride. But then we found out that Amy was living with them at the time, and that made a little bit more sense. Because if Amy was there, then she would have known how Lisa left, and she could have relayed that information back to Chris. So we asked Libby to be sure we were kind of on the right track, and it turns out that that might not have been accurate after all. Well. According to Amy's Facebook post on October 25th, Amy had actually planned to rent a car on Saturday the 27th and travel to Gulf Shores for the rest of the weekend and return on Monday. Though we're not sure whether that actually occurred, so we're still checking on this. So if Amy wasn't even in town, she couldn't have known what happened over the weekend. Yeah, and based on screenshots... She told Lisa she was going out of town and that Lisa could go with her. Um, but, you know, we don't have any proof right now that she did actually go out of town. It would just be interesting to know, was she actually in Eufaula or did she go to Gulf Shores? On November 3rd, Lisa's mother, Barbara Covey, went to Eufaula Police Department and filed a missing person report. And from what I understand, it went a whole lot like the rest of the adult missing persons go. They didn't really want to file it with her mom because um, they considered it a domestic issue. Her husband had not reported her missing. Um, she was an adult, it, but it was filed. And then on November 15th, a missing person alert went out for Lisa. Really? That far? Seems like yeah. a long time, doesn't it? From the 3rd to the well, 15th? It is a long time, but I. it goes back to that whole... Adults have the right to make the decision to leave, yeah. regardless of what the circumstances are. But you would think that this would have been, you know, a medically necessary thing. 
Right, because she left her medication at home. Exactly. Um, Lisa's mother actually lived in Baldwin County, so she wasn't in Eufaula to know really what was going on, um, where Lisa might be, really what was going on with her relationship with Chris or outside of what she was being told anyway. Um, And I'm assuming Chris probably wasn't communicating what was happening back and forth with people. Obviously, he didn't report her missing. And Libby didn't even know she was missing until Amy messaged her. So her mother had to drive to Eufaula to file the missing person report just to get that filed. It's odd when your husband doesn't file it. And I get it. They were separating. But this is your child's mother. Yeah. Well, and I mean, she was getting ready to have surgery in December, you know, and they weren't officially divorced, as far as I know. It's tunnel vision to say things like that. I know, and mm-hmm. I know the first suspect is always the husband. But there's just odd behaviors here. Right. You know, and I think if I I said that I was in an argument with somebody, and then I left, and suddenly they're gone, that's suspicious. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> like no, and not only did I leave, and now they're gone, but I didn't bother to tell anybody either until somebody else came along and did it for me. That's really suspicious. There's no way getting around that idea, at least. Even if even if he wasn't the one that did it, he didn't help himself by doing that. In my opinion, not at all. And there aren't many details available in the investigation, and it stayed pretty quiet until April of 2014 when various law enforcement agencies executed multiple search warrants and conducted several witness interviews near Ifala related to Lisa's disappearance. I think this was based on some information they'd gotten that Lisa's body had possibly been tied to some cement blocks and dropped in Lake Ufala. Also, I mean, that's a pretty big lake too, 45,000 acres. Yeah, that's huge, actually. <laughs> that is huge. Um, and then there's no way people could be on all 45,000 acres at one time. So that seems like that could be a plausible place. The search that they conducted was unsuccessful. They didn't find anything. Um, but according to an AL.com article, one of those witnesses was a man named Matthew Scott Moss, who claimed he witnessed the disposal of Lisa's body. Okay. Something, <laughs> uh, Yeah. We're going to talk about him in a minute um, because he comes back up later. Another interesting thing about this April of 2014 search was that the Alabama Beverage Control Board was involved. I've never seen the ABC board involved in a missing person case. And not only were they involved, they actually made comments to the media. Like they commented to the media that a search for Lisa's remains was conducted based on the pursuit of new leads and who was conducting the search efforts as far as which agencies were involved. And that's bizarre. That is a little bizarre. You go to the ABC store to buy your alcohol. And I mean, I'm sure there's other things that they do. And apparently they fall under the umbrella of Aaliyah. But for what missing persons purpose? And also Department of um, Alabama Department of Homeland Security was involved. Also, one we don't frequently see. We discussed that could have been because 
they were searching a state park area. Um, we've seen searches happen in state park, and I don't know that it was just weird. Yeah, just an just odd weird. kind of smattering of agencies to look into a missing person case that really actually didn't have a lot of looking into in the end. And with all of those people, nothing came out of it. Yeah, nothing. <laughs> yeah, and that was the last major update that I've seen in the media related to her disappearance. Frustrated with what little response she was receiving, Lisa's mother hired a private investigator, Kathy Johnston, of Johnston & Johnston Private Investigative Agency, to assist searching for Lisa. We wanted to reach out to Kathy to see if she could offer any insight into Lisa's disappearance, so we searched the State of Alabama Private Investigator Board and the Alabama Private Investigator Association rosters online in an attempt to find Kathy, but we were unable to locate her. And we also reached out to the Ufala Police Department, but we still haven't received a response back yet. So not only was Chris believed to have this controlling and abusive personality and behavior towards Lisa, but in 2019, Chris and his then-girlfriend attempted to rob an Auburn pharmacy of drugs. Officer Sanders of the Auburn Police Department pulled Chris and the girlfriend over related to this robbery, and Officer Sanders was actually shot multiple times. Chris and his girlfriend fled the scene to a relative's apartment nearby, and a standoff with the Auburn PD ensued. My gosh. During what? Yeah. I have to interrupt what, you because to me, this is like, did did his whole modus operandi, did that like all just completely change? I mean, we knew he was abusive, but this is pretty extreme from then. You always have to wonder, what was there some drug use before? Right. Yeah. That could be. Or was this something that happened later? Mm. I don't know. I mean, you I don't just, just, you don't attempt to rob a pharmacy of drugs if you don't have an intent to use those drugs. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It just struck me as you were saying that, that, you know, that seemed just so extreme, I guess, like I said. It, it is extreme. Not only do you go attempt to rob, I'm not even sure it was a successful robbery, honestly, um, but then you get pulled over by a police officer, and instead of saying, okay, you got me, you shoot him multiple times and run. So they have this standoff with the Auburn PD, and before that is over with, Chris actually kills his girlfriend before turning the gun and shoot on himself and shooting himself. And to make this whole situation even more extreme, Apparently, when the SWAT team was getting ready to breach the door, they were using tear gas as a distraction, and somehow a flame, um, a spark happened or occurred, and the whole dang apartment complex went up in flames. Well, so not only was this extreme to start with, but it really escalated as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, this was a whole cluster is what it sounds like. Talking about how, um, about Chris's behaviors, though, and whether or not there was some potential drug use there, going back to that Unfound podcast interview that Libby did, she talked about an interesting conversation that she had with Chris before 
he and Lisa moved to Eufaula. Libby actually sort of confronted Chris about his behavior towards Lisa and that he wasn't worthy of Lisa and that she was going to do her best to get Lisa away from him. And his response to that was pretty disturbing. He said that wasn't going to happen. He'd killed before and he didn't have a problem doing it again. Good heavens. Yeah. And so she asked him, well, what'd you do? And he said that a man had raped his sister in high school and he killed him for it. And that no one would ever find him because his family owned Eufaula. So owned Eufaula. Interesting. It is, it is interesting. But, you know, is this a, one of those things where it's somebody bragging, you know, like, yeah. oh, I'm important, I'm a big deal. Or maybe even just trying to scare her. Yeah, it's an odd statement. It's not something that you would you just would, have a general conversation. You yeah, know. you wouldn't think. But then again, he did end up killing his girlfriend and trying to kill an officer. So maybe there was some truth to it. Yeah, and if this conversation occurred and your brain thinks that it is okay to say, then something's not quite right. Well, I think we are, I think by now we figured yeah. that one out too. You know, he it's definitely was not quite you, right. Yeah, either maybe there is some drug use there. Maybe it go, it does say something about that possessive and controlling abusive relationship. It lends some support to that. And Libby said she actually told the police about this story, but she has no idea whether anybody actually looked into it. And It'd be interesting to know maybe about when that occurred, um, to know whether there's any man that would be missing in that area. You would think that somebody was gone and somebody would have noticed. Yeah. And maybe wherever, if if this is true and wasn't just some made-up story to try to scare Libby or seem more important than what he was, then maybe wherever this guy's body is could be where Lisa is. Well, that's a good point. There's an interview on YouTube with a guy named Scott Moss. I think we mentioned him earlier. Yeah, that's one of those guys that they, um, when they started doing the search warrants in 2014, that they talked to because he witnessed the disposal of the body. That's hard to even understand how that could have possibly been, and she's still missing. So Scott Moss, who claims to be a private investigator, actually, makes it even weirder. Mm -hmm. He claims that on January 8th in 2013, he discovered a cell phone and a knife on Highway 95. And he said he collected and notified Detective Brown with the Uvala Police Department. You know, he didn't just claim to find a knife in a cell phone because he went back the next day and said that he found what he described as a bloody mattress and a burgundy bed sheet. And he claims he put the bed sheet in a paper bag, sealed it, and wrote the time and date on it. And he says he's not the only person that saw this, that he was there with a group of people. They don't identify the people in the interview that were with him. But... In 2014, you say you witnessed the disposal of a body, which implies that she's been killed. 
one would assume, accidental or intentionally, she's no longer alive. Because if she was alive, you couldn't dispose of her body. But then in 2013, you just happen on a trail. Because, like, he goes on the 8th, he gets the cell phone and the knife. On the 9th, he finds a bloody mattress and a burgundy bed sheet. And then on the 10th, he claims he, or, well, he did find remains behind the New Hope to Missionary Baptist Church. Exactly. Also on Highway 95. So he just followed this trail straight to this? And beyond that, I mean, my question is, if he already witnessed the disposal of her body, then why is he even searching? He should already know where her body is. So it makes it a little less coincidental that he just happened on this area because this isn't even in um, Barber County anymore. This says this was Henry County. It's not like he was just searching the area around her house. How'd he get the information to go here? Yeah. You know, the WSFA article says he was tasked with locating a missing woman. Who tasked him with this? Yeah, I'm wondering, too. I mean, if he was part of a search party, maybe, but they don't really talk about talking with the other people in the search party, I don't think. Right, and he's not the private investigator the family hired. Mm -mm. We did, you know, reach out to Ufala Police Department, but we haven't heard back yet. And we're not even sure whether those remains were ever identified, honestly. And actually, earlier I was trying to find out that information, but I haven't found anything yet. So if we hear from Ufala PD or find an answer to that, we'll include that in a future update. And something, you know, also that I think that we had not mentioned was that Ufala Police Department, for the longest time, said they didn't even think there was foul play involved with Lisa's disappearance. It wasn't until after that whole event with um, Chris and the girlfriend in Auburn that they came out and named Chris as a person of interest in Lisa's disappearance. He was never arrested and charged, but they said they had reason to suspect that he had involvement in her disappearance. They've never named any additional persons. So you have to think there's somebody out there that has information, that knows what happened. And with that, if you or someone you know does have any information related to the disappearance of Lisa Wallace, please contact the Ufala Police Department at 334-687-1200. And just as a reminder, domestic violence is never okay. If you or someone you know is dealing with abuse or domestic violence, we encourage you to contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 800-799-7233. For our next case, we're headed to Blount County in North Alabama to discuss the 2017 murder of Christian Boyle. To kind of orient ourselves about Blount County, um, let's just go through some quick facts. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, Blount County is 651 square miles with an estimated population of approximately 59,000. It sits snugly between Marshall, Etowah, St. Clair, Walker, Jefferson, and Coleman counties. While South Alabama is situated on the Gulf of Mexico, North Alabama sits at the bottom of the Appalachian Mountains. It truly is beautiful, especially during the fall. Oh, I've heard that. 
love the pictures I've seen of that area. And also, if you're looking for something to do in Blount County, you can take a guided cave tour at the Rickwood Cavern State Park or go kayaking on the Locust Fork River, flowing off of the Black Warrior River. We talked about fishing earlier. Mm-hmm. Black Warrior has big deer. Oh, yeah. Just a random tidbit, Blount County also still maintains three fully functional covered bridges, which I think is kind of cool. That is kind of cool. So here are a few crime stats for you for Blount County. According to crime.alabama.gov, Blount County reported a total of 313 assaults, 247 burglaries, one homicide, and 352 larcenies, 149 car thefts, 17 rapes, and 8 robberies in 2017. And this is the year that Christian disappeared. Now that we're situated, let's jump into Christian's case. In 2005, Carrie Payne and her husband, George Boyle, adopted beautiful six-year-old twin boys, Christian and Brandon Boyle. Christian attended Cleveland High School and played football and and was an all-around athlete. He enjoyed all the sports and had even attempted golfing. I also read... um, in his obituary that he even liked riding bulls. What? Yeah. I hadn't seen that. I don't think I'd be brave enough to do that. No, not at all. I watch Yellowstone. That looks dangerous. Very much so. (laughs) After graduating high school and being an 18-year-old, Christian decided it was time to venture out on his own. So he moved into a place with his childhood best friend, Nick. And of course, at 18, you think you know everything. But most of the time, you realize pretty quickly that you don't. Uh, No lie. Call my mama every day. (laughs) Christian must have realized that, too, because Carrie says Christian called home at least once a day, if not more, and he regularly came over to do laundry. Part of his calls were due to the fact that his father, George, was actually extremely ill and his health was rapidly declining, so... Christian was always checking in to see how he was doing. On December 11th in 2017, Christian went by his parents, but he didn't stay long as the home health nurses were there to care for his father and he didn't want to be in the way. But after Christian left and the home health nurses had left, Carrie recalled her husband saying to her that he felt like Christian had wanted to talk to him about something, um, but he never really got a chance to figure out what that something was. We asked Carrie, you know, had Christian been acting strange or anything like that? Did he seem normal? Um, Did anything seem off? And she said that by the following morning, everything seemed fine. On December 12th, Christian called Carrie to check on his father and, and made plans to come over to do his laundry later that evening. A female friend of Christian's had borrowed his car that day to go to work, and he told Carrie he'd have to take that friend home before he came over. Christian didn't show up that evening, and he didn't call that night, as he usually did. So Carrie had kind of an unsettling feeling that she just could not shake. The next day, Carrie still hadn't heard from Christian. And not only had she not heard from him, but neither had Nick. And to make it even more concerning for them, Christian had also not come home the night before. So Carrie noticed that she had a missed call around 3 p.m., from a number she didn't have saved in her phone. And it wouldn't have been the first time that Christian had called her from someone else's phone because his battery was dead in his cell phone. So she dialed the number back almost immediately, expecting him to answer. 
However, the voice on the other end of the line was the female friend who'd borrowed his car. And she told Carrie that Christian had called her, but he'd since left to go to the store. Odd that he called his mom and then immediately leave, I think, especially when he could have just stopped by the house since he needed to do laundry anyway. But Carrie just asked the friend to have Christian call her when he returned. Yeah, and I think that Carrie's house was on the way to the store or somewhere in the travel. It wasn't out of the way, essentially. And she'd expected him to come by there at some point anyway. So you're right. You know, he needed to do his laundry. Christian was also scheduled for work on October 14th, which would now be two days after he was supposed to be there. Right. Um, But he never arrived. The friend Carrie had spoken to the day before said Christian had never returned from the store. And Carrie continued communicating with the friend over the course of the next several days. But the story she was getting really wasn't adding up. And Carrie said it just kind of kept changing. So not only was the story changing and Christian hadn't been heard from, but his social media had also went dark. There wasn't any activity. And she said this was completely abnormal because Christian was a teenager and he was pretty active on social media um, and had his phone regularly attached to him. Wasn't all that surprising to her if he had called her from somebody else's phone because she said he would regularly let his phone die. But it was bizarre for it to be this long without him contacting her. She said that even if he had not talked to her during the day, he would call her at night just to say, hey, good night, I love you, you know, and check on his dad. Since Nick had also not heard from him, he decided to just go drive around and look on the roads to see if he could see Christian's car um, or any sign of Christian on the off chance that maybe Christian had been involved in an accident. But those efforts were unsuccessful. Can't imagine how Carrie must have felt going from at least one call a day to hearing nothing. Especially when Mm-mm. she, yeah, especially when she'd expect Christian to just show up anyway, you know, doing laundry and all that. Um, but nothing. When Christian failed to pick up his check from work on the 15th of December, Carrie went to Blount County Sheriff's Office to file a missing person report because he would never do that. Right. And as it usually goes, she was told that no report could be taken because he was 18 and an adult. So he could leave, you know, if he wanted to. And that was one of those stories that you hear from a lot of people that they think, again, you know, if you're an adult, you have the right to leave and you're not necessarily missing. And there needs to be some kind of distinction drawn there. I think parents typically, like we talked about in Rakeem's case, parents have, a good intuition for the most part. They know when their kids are not doing their normal routine. Mm-hmm. Even when their kids are grown. Um, and I think there needs to be some kind of discretion there um, for that kind for that age gap between a minor and elderly. Yeah. I mean, everybody knows the first forty-eight are supposed hour. The first forty-eight hours are supposed to be the most important, but we're missing vital windows here because nothing can be done in the first forty-eight. That's exactly right. I mean, it's you know we're talking about kids here and parents knowing their kids, but you know, 
even even regular adults, the, if there's people who know them very well and they're out of character, I still think that they should at least merit a little bit of attention, even if they aren't sure that they didn't just walk away. They should put a little effort into it. Exactly. I mean, I know what my husband's routine is every day. If he doesn't show up one day, I'm going to know something's wrong. I just think there needs to be some adjustments there. Um, and that's something that Carrie agrees with, too. She asked about that the other night. What can we do to get this changed? Because without that official report, she couldn't even get the local news networks to even put Christian's name and photo in the news. That's just, that's horrible. And, you know, Rakeem Samuel's mom from his case, which we discussed in a previous episode, had the same kind of issues. Yeah. You know, they didn't want to put a face up on the screen because of privacy issues. And so there's just like, you know, so many, so many excuses, I think, is what I feel like they sound like not to do Mm -hmm. these, these basic things. Carrie, along with friends and families, continued their own search efforts for the next couple of days until finally on the 17th, Blount County Sheriff's Office just agreed to take a report. With the report being filed, local media outlets began covering Christian's story finally. Then 13 long days later, on Christmas evening, Carrie received a phone call that no parent ever wants to get. And people riding ATVs on Cold Branch Road in Cleveland spotted Christian's 2001 Silver Oldsmobile Alaret. According to ABC 3340, Christian was found shot to death beside his car. Carrie said to her knowledge, none of Christian's personal effects were found at the scene, including his cell phone, his wallets, or even his keys. And mind you, he was found near his car. So I just can't even imagine, you know, Either he was taken there or somebody brought him there and then took his keys and everything. I can't imagine sitting there on Christmas Day and Mm -mm. that being the call that you get. Yeah, it's a horrible December for that family. In 2019, Blount County Sheriff Mark Moon said they were able to obtain DNA out of Christian's car, but it had not matched anyone they tested it against. And he also said at that time, their two main suspects were in Jefferson County Jail awaiting trial for murder charges. In 2020, Blount County DA Pamela Casey asked the Attorney General's cold case unit to handle the investigation. We weren't really sure whether that meant the Attorney General's office would also handle the prosecution. We reached out to Mrs. Casey and asked. We also requested a status on the case and a copy of any public records that were available. According to Mrs. Casey, files cannot be released while an investigation is ongoing. She further added her office will not release any file without a court order. As far as prosecuting the case, she stated, Actually, there was an article that explained AG cold case investigations were asked to assist by my office. I have the prosecution still. Mm. So, we don't have an update on the case other than it's still ongoing. And I'm... Watch the interview, and my understanding is the Attorney General's cold case unit took it over because she felt they had more time to investigate the case. Um, but 
the headline to that article says Blount County DA hands case over to the AG. So um, I think they were maybe also a little confused about what exactly was happening. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of wires got crossed there. Yeah. Well, five years later, Carrie is still hoping someone will come forward with the truth. We are hoping that someone will hear this even and realize that they have information and come forward. We want to help Carrie find what happened to her son. What would you like to see happen in Christian's case? I want to see whoever's responsible charged and convicted for what they did. And if you could say anything to the people that did this, what would you tell them? I just ask them to please put an end to all this and give me the answers that I need to do the right thing. If you or anyone you know has information related to the murder of Christian Boyle, we urge you to contact Blount County Sheriff's Office at 205-625-4127 or Crimestoppers at 205-254-7777. You may also submit an anonymous tip via the Crimestoppers website, which is linked in the episode description. Crime Stoppers has issued a reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for Christian's death. You can also message us regarding Lisa, Christian, or other Alabama cold cases via the Alabama Cold Case Advocacy Facebook page or by email to alcoldcaseadvocacy at gmail.com. Unforgotten is an Alabama cold case advocacy podcast recorded in conjunction with Riverside FM, hosted and distributed by Anchor FM, available on your favorite podcast platform. Intro music for the show was created by Principles of Uncertainty, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Content and production is by Sellers and Stormy, artwork by Sellers. Credits for music, sound clips, special mentions, and any source referenced in our podcast can be found in each episode's description. We hope you will join us on all the major social media sites and continue to raise awareness of our Alabama cold cases. Until next time, thank you for listening to Unforgotten.